Larry, what's going on? Well, I've had a very good ego boost, which, you know, I'm a quite a sort of modest person. You won't have noticed. But I went and I was stopped three times yesterday with my new glasses, which I get from CM Broadway in New York. They have the most amazing... And I'm a bit obsessed, maybe because I'm so insecure that I had to keep going back and buying glasses every sort of... every. Too many times. Anyway, never mind, never mind about me. Who have we got today? Well, I do have to say, I do like uh, your glasses. They yeah, look really you. good. Well, they are. Good. Uh, today, we're joined by David Carr. So, David's got a very interesting story. Right. So, to start his adult life, David was actually going to become a rabbi. Oh. But then he pivoted to become an entrepreneur in the beauty industry. Oh, that's not a pivot. That's a, it's a pivot. big 180. Yeah. Oh, great. Well, well, I'm looking forward to meeting him and discuss and see if there's anything else he can improve without my glasses by the end of it. Well, he's here also to give us some advice from uh, potential entrepreneurs who were looking in the retail space, especially when it right. comes to manufacturing. Right. right. And more importantly, uh, closing the deal. So right. we'll hear from him. And that's what they really, a lot of our entrepreneurs are really suffering knowing or even thinking about how to close the deal. So that, that'll be great. Looking forward to meeting him. We'll meet him now. Okay. Speak to you later. David, great to see you today. Interesting background today. Is it the sea behind you? Because I know you're in Miami and uh, where are you? I am in Miami. What you're looking at is a mirror, which is reflecting the sea. Ah, right. Okay. So you couldn't afford to have a proper sea view. You've got one that's a picture. Yes. And it's the back of my head. Okay. Good. Okay. So I'm really, really pleased to see you. And you're such an interesting character. Your journey started off as a trainee rabbi, and now you're in the beauty industry. That's a really, really unusual transition. I mean, what came to you that you would go from being a rabbi to to creating beauty products? Help me. That's fascinating. I'm holding my breath. It is unusual, but it actually, um, it's a natural flow. Once you finish working on inner beauty and uh, spiritual beauty, uh, mental beauty, then you're like, okay, let's move this to the external. And then you focus on outer beauty. Well, actually, that's not what I followed, but I just realized that it does actually work together. Uh, but what actually happened was um, I was uh, finished my studies, and as a born entrepreneur, I, I had the bug, and I wanted to see what else was out there. I had a very... Uh, a very rich upbringing, very different, very unconventional background and education. And uh, that was all I knew. And I wanted to experience the business world. I wanted to see what was out there. I wanted to uh, jump in the deep end. And, uh, and I got an opportunity in real estate with a company called Westfield Shopping Malls. They have shopping malls all over yeah. the UK, the US, Australia. And I was in Australia at the time. Uh, and I worked for them there in New York. It was a great why, experience. Why were, you, why were you in Australia? Where did that come from? It was part of uh, my rabbinical training, part of my upbringing. So I went to a, a boarding school network that encourages 
travel and uh, working with local communities all over the world. So they'd sent me to Ukraine, to Russia, uh, to London. I, I spent uh, a year in London wow. and two years in LA. Uh, and I was following this path and that circuit, and that led me to Australia, where I was uh, chosen to work with a community there, a beautiful community in Sydney, Australia. Um, and I continued my studies, but the studies were not just, um, you know, education. It was also working with uh, actual communities and uh, learning to become a leader uh, in practice. So you said you had a, a rich upbringing. So am I right that your family were very wealthy? Uh no, <laughs> they were uh, rich in uh, in warmth and love and uh, not rich in wealth because my dad was a rabbi as well and my mom was a teacher. They still are. Um, I'm one of eight kids, the second of eight kids. And uh, so, yeah, we, we were very grateful for what we had, but, you know, certainly not a very materialistic upbringing. So, so the background is one thing. I'm really interested in that, but it's really important you know, as a startup or as any business that's going, is to have great sales ability, great, great sales. Where did you get your sales training from? So my dad being a community leader, we used to have people come over to our home for Shabbat dinner or any other uh, big occasion uh, on a regular basis. And the little kids would have to get up at three years old and give a talk to everybody. And then as we got older, that continued and grew. So every Friday we had to do community service. We'd go around to all, you know, the town square and go from door to door talking to business owners, doctors, lawyers, and telling them some inspirational message from, you know, that week's Torah portion or whatever it might be. And that got you to have confidence in yourself and to have very little fear in talking to strangers, talking to adults. Uh, didn't matter if they were more, edu- you know, educated, uh, smarter, uh, more successful than you. It really didn't matter. You just did your best to communicate to them. And, and that was a very important trait. And I, I suppose selling that kind of product is, uh, you get a lot of rejections. So you're probably, uh, used to being yeah. rejected. Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> Ever since I was a kid, I've been rejected. Ask my mom and dad. No, but in seriousness, um, being rejected is something that hurts a lot uh, if you're not used to it. But part of upbringing was going out there. When you put yourself out there, you get rejected. But it's better than not putting yourself out there at all. And in business, you need to go out there and hustle. Yeah. Now, this, that's a really important point because we deal with all sorts of people from all different backgrounds, uh, you know, irresistible. But one of the things we're finding that the, 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 the more you've been successful at school and university, et cetera, the more you suffer from not being uh, measured by exams and you know, I know out there, I mean, the purpose of this podcast, actually, is that we want to be the go-to place. We want to be the ghost, just to remind everybody, we want to be the go-to place where people who want to be startups can listen, people who are startups uh, can hear, people and families, especially, who are supporting uh, financially their their that family as a startup, that they should know about this. One of the greatest failures that I am seeing of startups is this hate, dislike for the S word. And when I'm talking about the S word, do you know what the S word is? Sales. Sales. Got it. So 
tell me how you, you've developed your sales technique and, and how you've worked on that. I mean, your cosmetics, I mean, this is really weird to go from, yeah, were you into cosmetics? I mean, it's not, nothing personal, but were you personally into it, using cosmetics when you were younger? I always had an appreciation for it, but I believe that business is not necessarily about any particular product. I can be passionate about a lot of things. I don't have to devote my life to something just because I'm passionate about it. And I don't have to not do something because maybe I didn't grow up loving it. You know, you can be successful in business by offering value, by doing things that uh, help other people in a way that they'd be willing to pay for it. So it's a win-win. That's business, really. And sales is a massive part of that. Uh, sales isn't a dirty word. It's giving somebody something that if it's a good sale, that will make their life better in whatever way, small, big, depending on what it is you sell. And I believe that my training uh, and my upbringing, you know, a rabbi sells. A rabbi has to be a leader. He has to be confident. He has to be somebody who's trustworthy. He has to be somebody that's offering a solution, that's offering a product that makes the life of their congregation or their community better. And he also, um, sorry to come in again, he also yeah. needs to know how to deal with rejection. How to deal with rejection and, and really it's about understanding what is it that the person in front of me needs. You know, when you're selling something, you're not trying to put project what you think on somebody else. You could try that. It's not a very successful sales technique. What's more successful is saying, what is it that they would be wanting from me right now? How can I make what they want uh, brought to them in a way that they can appreciate? And so if you're a rabbi, that's the same. If you're a salesperson, that's the same. How can I add value to them? What is their uh, what is their gap? What is their white space? What are they looking for in their life, in their business? And how can I make them achieve that? Because if I can help them achieve that, then I'm indispensable to them and I'm helpful to them. And then it's a win-win. Right, so give, again, our, our, our audience, our community, give some advice to them of how to approach this. Because just picture it, people have got People who have startups normally have a startup because they're passionate about what they're starting up on. So that they themselves are passionate about it. Can you give some advice that you would give to them about how to approach the dreaded S word when they're not really into it, that they're, they're brilliant or they, they created something really great or phenomenal, uh, uh, making a product or service, but tell them what, what you think they should do and tell them we're now talking to the audience who've got great ideas want to be a startup but absolutely are terrified about this s thing i think don't be fixated on what the word is it has nothing to do with that if you have a passion or an idea that you think could be of value to other people by expressing and communicating that value you are doing them a favor, right? And they're doing you a favor as well by adopting that and accepting what you're saying. And that is the win-win that business brings. Business is not one side wins and the other side loses. It's all sides win. That's the ideal business scenario. That's the ideal sales scenario. You don't want to sell something that somebody doesn't want and trick them into it. That's not business and that's not sales. Sales is this person's hungry. I'm going to give them the best meal ever at great value. So they're going to want to eat at my restaurant. I'm selling them food, but they're quite happy because they want to eat great food. So 
You know, it's not a dirty thing. It's a great okay, thing. Okay, but what is hard is the rejection. It's the rejection. I am so excited about what I've got to sell. I know it's going to be great for you. And I've made a hundred telephone calls. And believe me, you need to make hundreds of telephone calls, you know, or, or, and, and I'm talking about telephone calls because you're talking to people. Of course, people find it very easy to send thousands of emails and sending thousands of emails. I often think makes them feel that they're really doing a good job. What's your opinion about, you know, Digital sort of selling, as they may call it, or marketing, and really getting to them. How do we approach it? We've got this product to sell. I've got this new kind of makeup that makes me look even younger than I am, although I look pretty great at the moment, I think. It's the new glasses, by the way, that I've got today. Uh, I just don't want to bring that attention. So, so, But give them some, you know, they, they've sent out a 1,000, 10,000 emails, and they made two calls, and they're being rejected. Tell Give them a process, if you can, about what to sit down and do now. I'm depressed. I'm fed up. I love what I do. Nobody's really answering my emails, and there's nothing very interesting. And I can't, I can't get through to the people I need to get through. And I don't know who the people are. What do I do? So, so there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, number one, there's handling the rejection. And then there's trying to minimize the chances of rejection in the first place. Uh, those are two very important points to touch on. So number one, uh, the rejection itself, uh, listen to it. What are they telling you? Are they telling you, I don't have time, click, or they're just not answering your email, or are they answering saying, I'm not interested? If enough people are answering saying they're not interested, then you need to ask yourself a very difficult question. Are you offering something that's truly a value to this person or anybody? And if you are convinced and you're not delusional, but you're a smart person and you're objective as much as possible about your proposition, what you're offering, and you know that this truly is a value, and if only they could hear you out, they would agree as well, then you have to get to that point where they're going to hear you out. How do you do that? You need a hook, okay? That doesn't matter whether it's an email, a phone call, uh, in person, you need a hook. You gotta get them. In two seconds or one second, ideally, you need to get them to notice you, to uh, to hear you, and to understand why you're different than everybody else. So you need to know... An example of a hook yeah. for you in the beauty side. You came out as a rabbi or, you know, a trainee rabbi from that world into the beauty world. What hook did you use? Well, first of all... Um, I mean, there's, uh, there's a lot of hooks there. Um, I didn't just show up into the beauty world. I was working for a major corporation. I had a nice title. I had, you know, several years of experience and I was offered the opportunity because I had that track record, uh, which the people who I ended up partnering with felt if applied to beauty, corporate experience, entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial background, um, a bit of both. If you could apply that to their concept of beauty was to, which was to find great ideas from around the world and build them into new markets. So something great in the UK that everybody uses, but nobody in America heard of it or vice versa. It was the idea of not selling, but establishing successes in one market into another. And the hook was the first hook was to a customer in say the US. This is the biggest thing in the UK right now. Do you want to hear about it or? I have to share this with you because you as the biggest pharmacy chain in the US, you need to know what the biggest pharmacy chain in the UK just succeeded with. Here's what it is. 
It's great value. It does something that nobody else has. I've already checked your stores. You don't have anything like that. Would you be interested in having a meeting about this? Or would you be interested in samples? Or here it is right now, depending on whether you're in person or email or phone. That's a hook. I know that you care about your competition, whether it be in the U.S. or elsewhere. Let them know that the competition has this already. If you have a warm introduction, if you know somebody from their company, uh, the email subject line could be, Larry Gold referred me to you. That's the subject line. Now, they're going to open that because they know Larry, and they love him, of course, because everybody does. So the key is use something to make you not ignored, to use to make your email stand out. If it's email, if it's the phone, the second you get on that phone call, Larry gave me your number. Okay, you're already not going to get hung up on. If you're like, I want to sell you blah, 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 click, right? So what's the hook? How do you separate yourself from everybody else? Um, and how do you make sure that your message is actually going to be heard? Right. I, I love this. Everybody out there, write the word hook down, at least. Uh, 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 and it, it is important because what you're saying is something that's not in people's comfort zone. So people haven't come and trained about the, you know, had the training from, as I say, in your case, from religion and selling religion. But it's hard and you have to have that. And if you can't have that, you should consider, you should consider getting a partner. But before we get to the partners, <clears throat> let's talk about how did you get to the beauty business? From commercial property, I believe you in commercial property in that job. How did you get from commercial property to face cream? Well, just taking a step back, how did I get from being a trained rabbi to real estate? Uh, the answer is people are people. And, uh, you know, you sell yourself when you meet somebody the first time, when you get to know, I mean, you're always selling yourself because selling yourself is not, doesn't have to be conscious, but people see you and they have a perception based on how you carry yourself, how you dress, uh, whether you're on time, whether you're respectful, whether you smile and they either like you or they don't or somewhere in the middle. Um, but you're selling yourself every day, whether you like it or not, and whether you're aware of it or not. And, you know, I had an opportunity from somebody that I got to know in through my community work who recognized that I had initiative, that I had self-sacrifice, that I had creativity, that I thought outside the box, um, that I can relate to people, that I can convince people of things that I believe in. And those were the basic foundations for being successful in business, according to that person and according to Many people, if they're looking for a salesperson or a business development manager or somebody who could just take the reins, jump in the deep end, whether they're prepared for it or not, they're prepared for the unprepared. And then in any situation, you can prepare as much as you want for life in college. There's going to be a lot of things that happen that you were not prepared for. So if you're only prepared for what you're prepared for, you're going to have a very rude awakening. If you're prepared for the unexpected, because you are a natural born entrepreneur or you can adapt to being an entrepreneur or you're just a, you know, a, um, a person who's up for risk and adventure, then you will adapt in whatever situation you find yourself. And that is a really important thing for business. So I adapted to my life in Sydney, Australia, very far from my family in New York. And, uh, you know, I met people and, and I proved to them that I was worthy of responsibility and I was able to make something out of what didn't exist previously. And so different business leaders who were very successful in different industries 
at the end of my tenure there, they, they said, okay, what do you want to do? Do you want to go back to the U.S.? Do you want to be a rabbi or are you looking for something else? And I said, well, actually, I'd love to explore other opportunities. And they said, well, you're the kind of person we would want to give a chance to. So, you know, how would you like to go through a training program? And I said, I was, I, I would love that. Um, but, uh, the bottom line is, uh, I, I jumped at the opportunity. I got, a beautiful training uh, program in many different sides of, of the business. I spent a number of years there. Um, I was able to contribute to the business. So don't and then go to and come into, but what if you don't have a beautiful training program? If you can't find that, what can we tell the people out there that they haven't got that luck, if you like, or, you know, take, or cleverness to take the opportunity? So everything is training. If you don't have a training program, but you have a job that is training, right? It's called on-the-job training. Okay. Um, if you go to school, you're training. If you're out in the world talking to somebody, you're training to refine your interpersonal skills, your communication skills. Everything you do in your life is training towards something, unless you're sitting watching TV and doing nothing, in which case maybe you'd be really good at watching movies and giving critique. I mean, you know, what I'm saying is everything you're doing with your life um, is training you to be better at whatever you weren't as good as uh, before trying it. So obviously try to get whatever training you can by meeting people, reading books, uh, watching documentaries, you know, whatever it is you like, if you're passionate about business, right? Take a course in business, uh, go to walk a trade show for an industry that's interesting and just walk over to people at the booths and walk over to people walking by. Hey, what do you think about this industry? You know, I'm a student. I just graduated. I'm about to graduate. Um, I'm really interested in the beauty industry and, uh, you know, marketing is really what my passion is. Uh, do you know of any marketing opportunities in the beauty industry? Like people, these are business owners standing right out there. Fully accessible. Trade shows are a secret weapon. But that's just one example. Getting a, an internship is another way in the door. I mean, there's, there's a million ways in. You have to know what interests you, what, what you're passionate about, what you're good at, recognize those strengths, uh, get, get them to be stronger strengths by training and working at it. And what you're not good at, recognize that as well. And don't try to be the best you know, like I, I'm not a musician. If I tried to be a, a, the best piano player in the world, I would fail. So I could learn how to be a okay piano player or I could focus on drums because I'm really good at drums. Like why try to go against the current if you know where your skills and your passion and your interests lie? Go in that direction. And then, like you said before, Larry, um, hire or partner with somebody who is the opposite of you. So how do you find these people, though? You know, where do you get, I mean, this is again a big problem about startups and, and in fact, not just startups, but established businesses. They just seem stuck in finding the right sort of person and keeping the right sort of person and in actual fact, motivating the right sort of person. Those are the real key reasons I'm seeing. And again, people should be thinking about how good are they motivating at their part? And not just the people they're employing, their partners and working with them. This is, what's been your worst experience working with partners then? You can get, just like marriage, um, you could uh, make the wrong decision by not looking at the warning signs, by not getting to know somebody properly. So, 
meet people like when you're dating, you're networking, you're going to bars and meeting people, you're going to singles events, you're going to uh, speed dating, whatever. Um, in business, it's the same thing. It's trade shows, industry events, mixers, uh, at your church, at your synagogue, at your, you know, wherever you congregate, you get to know people. And let's say you want to be in real estate. Hey, who's in real estate? Oh, that guy's in real estate. Hey, Steve, I know you're in real estate. I'm really interested in real estate. Can I have coffee with you? Yeah. Okay. People like giving back. Yeah. People are very happy to help a young person who's starting out in whatever it is. You know, they're passionate about what I've chosen in my life. I, I, that's a compliment to me. I'd love to talk to you. Absolutely. Most people will say yes, um, especially if you're a nice person and you're asking nicely. And so, you know, uh, you know, okay. So you meet somebody from there and okay. Well, I'm looking for somebody who's really good at the analysis part. I have a business idea, Mr. Steve in real estate. Um, you know, I want to, you know, build condos in Florida and I found a niche. Um, and I'm really good at building that vision, but I need somebody in sales because I'm not good at sales and I need somebody who's going to manage day to day and I'll be kind of the CEO. Um, oh, you should talk to Jack. He's really good at that. And I know he just finished his role at another company. And then you meet these people and you talk to them. Well, first of all, do you like each other? Do you have common ground? Um, do you communicate well? Do you see yourself working with that person on a long-term basis? Uh, so you have to ask those questions right off the bat. If the answer is yes, and it's feeling good, and you get to know them better, and you feel even better as you go, well, then you know that's a pretty good prospect. If you're like, oh, my God, I, I saw a different side of that person. I never want to work with that person. Well, then you move on. Um, now, I've had situations where it looked great, but then – you know, things happen, you know, times get tough and people react differently. And then you know, I'm like, well, I don't see eye to eye to that person anymore, you know, or some people you think are great and then you find out they're not honest. And that's really, really a rude awakening. And, and you need to separate yourself from that person. And so that's complicated. Um, you're going to make some right decisions about people and partnerships and friendships and, and you're going to make some wrong decisions and you're going to have to pivot. It's just life. Right. I like that you make some right and wrong decisions. And I think that people shouldn't be terrified about making a wrong decision. And I think the word pivot is very important where you t change around. But let's talk about Clara, the beauty brand. Tell us how you got to the beauty brand. I mean, I'm still fascinated. I mean, I know your skin looks good and you're, you're really 78. But uh, tell us about how yeah. you got there. Yeah. I, I hear all the time, I don't look a day older than 77, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? which means my yeah. products are really yeah, working. But, but I don't use products, um, and look how great I look, and I'm very old. Yeah, but you're not good for my business. No, sorry, you know? sorry. No, I use low, <laughs> you're all, oh, Clark, I use everything. There you go. Sorry, go Thank yeah. you. Sorry, <laughs> fabulous. But to answer your question about how, how I got there, so I joined these two guys, uh, great entrepreneurs. Uh, we traveled the world. We we found great ideas. We built those ideas into new markets. It was really exciting stuff. At one point, we bought a brand called Yes2 uh, from an inventor, a product developer, and a factory owner in Israel. Uh, he had a great concept based on organic vegetable extracts and Dead Sea mud mixed together into a skincare line that hadn't been done before. Uh, organic, natural beauty was a big thing, but it was very uh, expensive and inaccessible to the average person. So you might find it at Sephora or at, um, you know, department stores, but the average American and the average, you know, citizen in most countries around the world 
can't shop at department stores on a regular basis. Maybe it's a special occasion. Every day they're going to Walgreens, they're going to CVS, Boots in the UK. Uh, they're going to their local supermarket. Uh, they're going to Walmart, to Target. That's where they're really shopping, or TJ Maxx and Ross and Burlington. Um, and so if that's where America shops and, and that's where the volume is, um, and there's innovation at the high end, the idea we had was bring something that should be at the high end, that was at the high end, adapt it in whatever way possible to the mass market so we could get volume. And if this is truly something great, the more people that can benefit from it, the better. If you have a business mindset, but you also want a win-win business where you're helping people while making money, which is the ultimate business model, then you want as many people to benefit from it as possible. Or you can have a high-end product, sell to less people, make more margin. It's up to you. Uh, but we decided to go mass market. We brought this brand to Walgreens. Walgreens said, well, we'll give you a Walgreens.com test at the time com didn't sell a lot of volume, but we said, okay, we'll take it. Uh, and we went full on into it. We, we, we gave it our all and they said, wow, this was a very successful test. We're putting you in all 9,000 stores. So that put our brand on the map in the U S we did that with boots in the UK. We did it with the Watsons in Asia, uh, Sephora in Europe and, and many other chains. So what, the what world. was online? What was online that looked so good that suddenly the people, all these people were ordering? What did you do? What was the magic? The truth is the magic didn't happen that well online. It just didn't. It wasn't that successful. What they saw was that they knew the website was limited in how many people were going to buy because people weren't shopping online then. It was very new for them. But what they saw was how much we put in in terms of resources, money, advertising, um, just passion and, and time. How did you do that? though, David, how did you do that? Just give us some hints as well for people. I mean, we did a, good, uh, <laughs> a partnership with Cosmopolitan magazine, uh, and we called it the search for the face of the S2 brand. And so this, we had a camper van that went to, uh, college campuses across America searching for the right face, somebody really personal and cheerful and friendly and appealing that matched the brand ethos. Um, I don't recall if we went to Cornell, but probably. And, and whoever got, uh, you know, who won that competition, uh, got, you know, a free supply of, of the brand, got a modeling contract with us and with Cosmo magazine. And they were going to get their, you know, a feature in Cosmo magazine. So for somebody who's an aspiring model or business person or just somebody who wants to get out there, uh, this was a great opportunity. So people lined up at universities and we told Walgreens what was happening. We said this is in partnership with Walgreens and, you know, ultimately it was very successful and it generated a lot of excitement and it was just different. And so even the PR that you could generate from that idea, even if the idea sent nobody to Walgreens.com, it doesn't even matter. It matters that you created a movement and you created excitement around something. And the ability to do that translates to sending people into stores ultimately. So if Walgreens is trying to find the right new brand to partner with, they're going to do it with somebody who shows this initiative, this drive, this uh, lack of, of uh, you know, risk tolerance. They have risk tolerance um, and they think outside the box and they're willing to do things that others are not. Uh, so they might not have the biggest budget for advertising, but they're going to make whatever budget they have go really far. 
So let, let, let's talk about manufacturing now. I mean, this is something that has to be manufactured. And, and tell us about, you know, were you doing it in your bedroom? You have a big barrel and you're putting all the ingredients in or in the yard outside. And I mean, where was all this, this, all this stuff coming from? And, and how did you deal with the manufacturing of it? So great question. When I had the partnership with, uh, the other co-founders of this beauty brand, um, we had bought it from a factory owner. He produced the product for us. We went to visit the factory. We learned about it. We saw the process, uh, but it was, it was handled. Uh, ultimately we ended up selling that brand. And then I was on my own saying, what now? And I had just proposed to my wife. Uh, we got married. What, what were you uh, oh, sorry. Marriage. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I said to her, um, you know, we're, we're getting married and, and, uh, as a honeymoon, um, I'd like to propose China. Um, and quite honestly, because I need, I, I just started my own company after selling this other brand with these partners and I never actually handled the sourcing and the production and the product development on my own. I saw other people do it and I had input into that and insight into that, but I never actually did it myself. And I think that there's no greater, uh, country for production and development, uh, than China. Maybe not for beauty, but at the time I was looking to get out of beauty and try something in accessories and, and areas of the store that weren't as saturated and weren't as dominated by the big Johnson and Johnson's, the Olay's, the Estee Lauder's, and so on. And so I went into the invention space and China is the only place to cost effectively produce products like that. Plastic, glass, you know, uh, material, whatever it is, that's what China's all about. So we went on our honeymoon to really not pretty places in middle of nowhere, China, um, where I, you know, lived in whatever little hotels they had and, um, you know, went to these, uh, muddy little villages to see these factories and meet the people and understand how it works. And, you know, just by seeing it, by being part of it and by, by having to, you know, make this product. Like I, I, I went to the factory. How, with the how did you, and David, how did you set up this trip? That, that seems like a, a, a pretty... I just got a flight. That was it. I, sorry. I literally, I just bought a flight. Uh, that was it. I bought a flight. I knew what city I wanted to go to because there was a big trade show happening. So the trade show was kind of my head start. All right. Okay. So I went there knowing that there was, let's say four different regional trade shows and I would go from one to the other. And in between, I'd have three weeks here, two weeks there to meet people, go visit their factories. They would pick me up from the, from the airport, take me to their place, show me around. Uh, and that's how they do it there. They're very hospitable and they want the business and they want to, they want to take a shot on you. They're very open to that. They're entrepreneurial as well. And so. Once you meet one and then you meet another and meet another, you compare prices, you compare quality, you compare lead time, you compare, well, who's nicer to work with, who seems more honest, who has a nicer factory, who has a better operation, who do my competitors use, um, many different factors, who has the right regulatory, you know, certificates. Um, you start learning the questions to ask just by being there. Right. You know, right. you don't have to go to college for that. Right. You can. It certainly helps. So I suppose when you're going around the exhibition, the exhibitors tell you, we have this, we have this, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And you know that, that. I think that's a really important thing for people to sometimes they really can't know the questions to ask. But if you ask the people about the business, they'll, and when they're talking about the business, that's a way of really collecting some good questions. 
So I hope that. Yeah, I think if you have a goal, if you have a goal, I want to make this product, then your path will become pretty clear quickly, you know, because, well, let me see who else is making that. Let me go to stores and see how much it sells for. Oh, it sells for $10. Well, if it sells for $10, I got to make it for a dollar in order to, you know, cost of shipping, cost of production, cost of molds, uh, cost of hiring three people to do this, uh, cost of uh, shipping, cost of warehousing, and I need to make 40% profit. So I'm working backwards from $10. I got to be at a dollar. So who's going to give me this for a dollar? So David, interesting about China. Why did you then have all the manufacturing done in Korea? So that was at a point where my business strategy was go away from skincare. And the reason why was when I sold this company, the climate in the beauty industry was one of brand, brand, brand. Everybody wanted brands. What brands did they want? The ones with all the advertising dollars. We got lucky that we found a niche and we managed to get into organic and natural before it was mainstream. And we got it to stores like Walgreens and Walmart at prices that made sense for that retail uh, environment. Uh, whereas before that, it was for, you know, 30, 50, a hundred dollars at higher end retail. So we found a niche and that was great. But how many niches are you going to be able to find? Like, I didn't have a second idea at that point. I went to the retailers. I already had these relationships. And I said, instead of me selling you another product that you may or may not like, tell me what you're looking for. Tell me where the opportunity is in your stores. And I will go out and get you that. And they said, well, Shark Tank has just started. It's the uh, inventor's age, right? That was, it was the decade of the inventor. You know, you had the as seen on TV guys making billions in this space with all these gadgets, uh, you know, with massive walls of product, you know, at the checkout counter in their own section in the store. And they're like, well, there's no real, I mean, there's competition for that shelf space, but all you need is a better widget. So you can come up with a better widget, package it nicely, make it at a $9.99 price point. I'll give you shelf space. So I had my marching orders. I set out with that clear goal. But ultimately, I had this business going in beauty. And I had my own money working and my own risk, 100% risk in the invention side of the business. China is better for inventions. Korea is very good for beauty, skincare in particular. Um, then what happened was while I was doing this over a number of years, uh, K-beauty, which stands for Korean beauty, became a massive trend. Indie beauty became a massive movement, which went away from the big brands to the little guy. Everybody was all about helping the little guy, you know, or, or girl, you know, so we want women founders. We want, you know, uh, minority founders. We want little businesses, small businesses. So they had small business expos, small business advisors. Every local government set up small business help to help the little guy get some shelf space. And the retailers started saying, it's not about who has $10 million or more to invest in driving sales to my stores. Now it's about innovation, uniqueness, and who's who deserves a chance, which was like, wow, that's pretty revolutionary. Let me try my hand. In the meantime, all the companies that I was consulting with in beauty, the businesses were going phenomenally well. So I saw, you know, businesses that I was starting from scratch with these founders uh, you know, starting from the U.S. from scratch. They might have had a business in the U.K. They might have had a product, but I helped them, you know, reposition the product for the U.S. market. Sometimes they were creating a new product from scratch. And I introduced them to the retailers and I told them how to do it. And I worked with their designers and I'm essentially building their business with 
granted their money and their, you know, production capabilities and making them tens of millions of dollars a year. Um, in the meantime, what I realized in my inventions business is every time you have an invention that's successful, A, you'll have many others that are not successful. B, even the one that is successful, they then say, okay, well, that's one item. I need more. You know, I got to build this. So come up with invention number two to complement invention number one. Well, that's really hard to do. You got a gun to your head. Come up with an invention. It's not that easy, right? So how do you deal with that? How do you deal with that? I did my best to come up with product extensions that complemented the original idea, and I was reasonably successful. Uh, The problem is then they were like, okay, well, I want something more. And so then I would come up with another idea that isn't about that product. It's its own invention. I ended up having more than 20 patents in our company, and each one ended up being, well, one's made out of plastic, one's made out of steel, one's made out of, you know, fabric. I realized that in China, everything is highly specialized. You could have one phone that actually every component comes from another factory. So it could be a hundred factories to produce this final product. And when you're a small operation, that spreads you really thin. Now I got to go to different regions in China because that's the fabric region. That's the steel region. That's the toy region. That's the, then on the sales side, well, I only buy toys. This is a toy in my company, but that retailer considers that a accessory for gifts. That's the gift section. I don't buy gifts. That's Steve. Go to Steve. So now I got to go to Steve, right? Then, you know, well, actually, I don't know who the buyer is. We're a company with 20,000 buyers. I don't know who it is. Go to the next trade show. Go to the gift show. You'll meet them there. So then I'm going to the gift trade show. I'm going to the kitchenware trade, the houseware show in Chicago. I'm going to the um, beauty show for my beauty business in California and, you know, But, but to do Las all Vegas. that, surely, David, and we're talking to, you know, about entrepreneurs, surely you've created some wealth that's allowing. How does the person that's, who's listening today, how do they actually do it with limited funds? Like, could I just... I had a- no fun. I took whatever I made from my uh, exit from my other brands mm-hmm. And I put it into a container like like the next day. I started an LLC and I put all my money into the development of molds and patents and trademarks and the basic infrastructure and renting space in a warehouse and hiring a person to assist me. It's very interesting. Molds and patents and applications that, that this is where people are missing out doing this. The people really know this is part of the cost of a business and it's something you should pay attention to. So I'm glad you mentioned. What specific advice or strategies would you give to an entrepreneur who are learning to build credibility in their industry? Any specific points, specific points? Absolutely. To build credibility, you have to have credibility. How do you do that? You need to know your stuff. So if you have a product... You need to know about that product. You know, you need to know the ins and outs of it. The first question a retailer asks people when they come there with a product is, um, okay, what's your, what, what basis do you have to tell me that this is something that I need in my stores? Like, why is this something I need? Uh, well, I think it's a good idea. Okay, great. You think it's a good idea. That's my, that shelf is my real estate. I lose my job. If I give it to something that's a dud, that fails, why should I put my job on the line for you? So if you envision that conversation before it happens, 
Because once it happens, it's a little too late. I need to re-emphasize that because this is what people, you know, and many of the startups are not doing, imagining the conversation and the objections and the concerns that people are trying to sell to. And then, the, and then what we're trying to get people to do is write down what they imagine and then come up with an answer. It's a process because this is not in the normal entrepreneur's, you know, unless you've got real commercial experience. It's about questions. And I think you you really are great at anticipating what the customer may ask. I think it's natural for you. Um, well, it's because I got beaten many times. And then when you get beaten enough times, you start training your mind and, and your actions to be done in a better way. Like I probably showed up to some meetings early on pretty unprepared. And then that never happened again because I said, I'm never going to do that to myself or to them or to anybody else again. So, you know, for example, I can go to a retail like Walmart, never having walked into the beauty section of their store and I have a good idea and they say, well, what do you think the price should be? And I say, well, I think it should be 10 bucks. Well, do you know that I have a product that's doing really well for me right now that looks very similar to yours at $5? So why should I charge double for yours? Oh, well, actually, that's a good point. I never actually saw your store shelves. You're coming to a meeting with me and you never walked into my stores? There's the door, right? So do your homework. Otherwise, you're just a nuisance. You're just annoying. Great. Do your homework, everybody out there. Really, really. This is about it. Okay. And on that great note, I want to thank you. Absolutely fascinating what you've got. It's, and there's so much in there. I'm sort of like overwhelmed, but I think you've given us some great insights. Um, absolutely fantastic, David. And I wish you continued success. And I, and I hope to see you again in the near future. Thank you for having me. So what do you think of David? Um, oh, my goodness. It was quite overwhelming, especially from his start as a rabbi to this great entrepreneur who, who demonstrates that how he pivots so much and has so much energy but he gave, there are some really golden bits to what he said, golden bits about selling, golden bits about how to learn about the product. And the most thing that I liked about him was his ability to ask suppliers and potential customers, what do they want and need? I got that out of this last show better than any other time before. People who are entrepreneurs who have got great ideas, do not go to potential customers. Instead of saying, this is what I've got, will you buy it? They need to go like he has done all over the place and saying, what do you want? What do you need? And then from that, learning it and then going back and saying, right, we'll deliver. That's what I got out of that. Amazing. Amazing. He is great, isn't he? He provided a lot of great advice. Yeah. yeah. Well, Hopefully at home, you got a lot of great advice. You can take it with you on your own entrepreneurial journey. And we'll speak to you soon. Okay. For more on me, Larry J. Gould, and the show, check out our website, our irresistible newsletter, and follow us on social media.